And tonight, uh, in chapter 25, Bildad, one of Job's friends, is going to speak his last words to Job. And he's going to ask Job, how can man be righteous? And Job can be thankful that what Bildad has to say to him is, is short. And maybe it's because Bildad is starting to get the picture, you know, in his mind saying, you know, you know, Job's a, a, a pretty thoughtful and intelligent guy. Maybe Bildad is starting to think, you know, if Job is guilty, if he was guilty, why doesn't he break under this verbal argument that we've had together? So through it all, he still says, Job says, through all of these been through and all the argument with his friends, that he's still an upright man. And he stood up against even all through his pain and suffering. And remember that Bildad is old school. Bildad believes that God follows certain laws. And that things have been done this way for a, for, for a thousand years, so why would God change now? Why would there be a change? This is just the way it works. And he says, see, this is what happens every time. The law of God is he will punish sinners. And yet he wonders why Job doesn't break if he's a guilty sinner. I mean, we have people today, theologians and scientists, who, who talk so competently. So wisely. And especially about creation. And they seem to know exactly what God did under certain conditions billions of years ago. And you know what? They seem to have succeeded, unfortunately. They brainwashed a whole generation. But, you know, I, I, I believe if you're a thinker, you won't be as easily brainwashed. I, I'm just a simple-minded guy. A huge skeptic when it comes to a lot of things. And these theologians and these scientists and their wacky assumption of knowledge is just too hard for me to believe. I mean... They don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. So how in the world can, can they talk so surely about what has happened billions of years ago? I think they just love to hear themselves talk and get the oohs and the ahs from the crowd. From the people who listen to them. And I really get tired of them. Does anybody really know exactly the first what the first chapter of Genesis means? I wonder what Moses would think today if he could hear some of man's scientific explanations. He'd probably laugh and say, man, what those guys have learned since I've been gone, since I wrote Genesis. They seem to know more about it than I do. Both Bildad and, and today's so-called intellectuals need to remember that God's ways are past finding out. And like I said, these are Bildad's last words to Job. It's his third speech. 
Zophar doesn't make a third speech. He quits after two. Bildad's speech is very short. And what he says is true. But it doesn't help to explain the problems that Job is experiencing. It's all true and wonderful, but it doesn't have anything to do with Job's situation. And at this point of the argument, since the three friends had nothing to say about what Job had said, it would have been good for them to have admitted, you know what? We were wrong, Job. We were wrong. And you were right. But you see, that takes a lot of humility. It takes one being honest with themselves to do that. And rather than do that, most men would rather say something. Even if it's wrong, even if it, ha- it has nothing to do with the situation. So Bildad spoke as though he didn't have anything, uh, even though he didn't have anything worth saying about the subject of Joe's problems. The majesty of God compared with the insignificance and the iniquity of all men, not just of Job and the wicked. That is the subject of Bildad's speech here. The first thing Bildad brings up in his talk with Job is about the rule of God. And what Bildad says here is right. He pictures God as the sovereign ruler of the universe. So let's look at verse, uh, chapter 25, beginning with verse 1 and 2. Then Bildad, the Shuite, answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. So Bildad starts out in his speech here on the rule of God by emphasizing the position of God's rule. The word dominion here means to have rule. And God is the number one ruler of the universe. He's sovereign. No one is above God. There's none beside him. There's none like him. He has dominion. He rules over all. The great name of God in the Bible that emphasizes his his supreme rule over man is in Exodus 3.14. I am that I am. That great name of God means that God can do what he pleases. And nobody can stop him because, you see, he has dominion. He rules supreme. And then Bildad talks about the danger of fighting against God's rule. The word fear here means a sudden alarm. It means the object feared, the feeling of fear. Now, the word fear here is not like the word fear in other places. It speaks of reverence. In other words, the way fear is used here speaks about the danger of going against God's dominion or his rule. And men should really be afraid of what will happen if they go against God. But as we see today, they're not. God's rule is to be submitted to or there will be serious consequences. God doesn't tolerate those who challenge his rule. He rules plain and simple or else. But unfortunately, many people aren't afraid of God's judgments. Some even mock God's judgment. You know, how many how many people have you heard say it? Maybe you at one time. You know, if God's real, why doesn't he strike me dead right now? They mock God. Because they don't understand his grace and his mercy. God's judgment is one of his attributes. And it's one of those attributes that a lot of people don't like to hear about. All they want to hear about is the love of God and the kindness of God and the goodness of God and and the peace of God. 
But you know what? We also need to hear and to know that, as it says in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. And the idea that a lot of people have about God is, is, is wrong. He's not some easygoing, gray-haired pacifist who just winks at our sins. And just kind of, you know, well, you know, I, I know you're, you're human and, you know, and, 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 and that he just does good for everybody. He's a holy God. And he rules supreme. And his laws are to be respected. Or there will be kind of consequences to face. Bildad talks about the peace of God. That he gives. Now, many of the rulers of the world who think they're great rulers, they don't bring peace. They bring war on people. Chaos. But when God rules, there will be true and lasting peace, real peace. No one can bring peace like the almighty God. And not only can he bring, 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 bring peace on earth. No, as we're going to hear about, you know, in Christmas time. He not only can bring peace on earth, which he did when when Christ came. But we read in verses one and two that he has brought peace in the heavens. It says his high places. The problem with the earth is that it won't submit to God's rule. And that's why we have so little peace on earth tonight. If God rules, we'll have peace. If he doesn't rule, there will be strife. And that's exactly what the world is experiencing tonight and experiencing continually and it's getting worse. The problem of having peace in the world is emphasized by the fact that there's not a country in the world that won't choose God to be the ruler. If an, if an election was held in the country. Plus, all peace talks that leave out submission to God, are, are they're going to fail. And that's why all peace talks and treaties over the centuries of, uh, in man's history have never worked out. And they will continue to fail because they leave God out. There's a gospel lesson here. God offers peace for the soul. Paul said in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the most important peace that anybody can receive, the peace of Jesus Christ. Without it, without the peace of Christ, the wrath of God is going to come upon man. Listen to what it says in John 3.36. <clears throat> he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Look at verse 3 now. <clears throat> Bildad asks, Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? Now a great ruler will have a great army. But no matter how great his army is, no ruler is greater than God. And no one has a greater army than God. The number of those in God's army in heaven is so great that Bildad just 
uses rhetorical speech here to emphasize the greatness of number. In other words, when he says, is there any number to his armies? You know, it's rhetorical. There's no answer. There's no answer to emphasize the greatness of number. God can use his armies anywhere at any time to put down any uprising against his rule. Remember when Elisha was surrounded by the Syrian army in 2 Kings chapter 6? Elisha's servant's eyes were open to the fact that a greater army belonging to God was surrounding the Syrian army to protect Elisha. And the message given to the servant by Elisha about God's great army was this in 2 Kings 6.16. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Bildad is right on in saying God's rule is everywhere. As it says in verse 3, there's no place where the light of God's rule doesn't shine. Now, men might not submit to God's rule, but that does not mean that God is not in control. That does not mean that God doesn't rule. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have dominion over them anymore. The other subject of Bildad's last speech is the righteousness of God. And in speaking of the righteousness of God, Bildad does it in a negative way when it comes to man. The righteousness of God creates a big problem for us, for all mankind. And that is that man is not righteous. And in order to dwell with God, God requires that a man must be righteous. And we can't do that on our own. Look at verse 4. How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? It's a good question. The Bildad asks about divine righteousness. Now the answer to his question here about being justified should be the main thing that every man seeks after. And the answer to that question is clearly given in the gospel. Jesus is the answer. That's the only way we can receive divine righteousness through Christ Jesus, his righteousness. Paul said in Romans 5, 1, that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The subject that Bildad brings up here has been mentioned before by Job in chapter 14 and by Eliphaz in chapter 15. And it shows that Bildad has nothing new to say. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, rather than being quiet, And admitting that he lost his debate with Job. He just goes on talking and talking whether what he says helps the debate or not. The question that Bildad asks recognizes the depravity of man. And his shortcoming. That's why he can't be. In a holy God's presence. Not many are good enough to stand uncondemned before God. But Bildad, along with Job and Eliphaz before him, they recognize that man is lacking in righteousness. And we know from the gospel message that this shortcoming can be solved only through Jesus Christ, who will provide us the necessary righteousness when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. Verse 5. 
Even if the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight. What Eliphaz says here is a lot like what he said in his second speech. Eliphaz said in chapter 15, verse 15 through 16, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy. What Job is saying is that if the moon and the stars aren't clean, they don't have a soul like man does, then how much more is man unclean? If the moon and the stars aren't clean, and they don't have a soul, like man does. How much more is man unclean? The Bible gives a lot of convincing arguments to convince men that he's unclean, that men are unclean in God's eyes. For example, God says in Isaiah 64, 6, we are all like an uncertain thing and all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Man's uncleanness is so bad that even his righteousness is unclean. Paul said in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. None means none. Nobody, not one. They've all gone astray. They've all gone their own way. They're all doing their own things. Paul said they fall short of the glory of God. Now that totally does away with the idea that man can work his way to heaven by doing good things. No matter how long you live, you could never do enough good things to work your way into heaven. You could never balance the scales with God. The only righteousness that will be accepted is divine righteousness. And divine righteousness we can only get from Jesus Christ. Verse 6. How much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. How do you like that? (laughs) Bible calls us maggots. (laughs) Bildad speaks the truth. Now, it is not a popular truth. You know, when when we look at maggots, we get gagged out. Not a pretty sight. But man is a worm compared to God's righteousness. And where do you finally, where do you usually find maggots? In filth. In corruption. Decaying stuff. The word word here, worm here is, is, is a word to show the lowly position of man before God. We're nothing but maggots before God. And for those in the military, that was one of the DI's favorite words. You maggots. Because of his sin, because of man's sin, man is so lowly that he's like a worm on the ground. The first word translated worm is found here in Job. It especially describes a man's lowly position. It emphasizes the great lowliness lowliness of man because of his sin. You see, sin defiles a man. And sin demotes a man. Sin doesn't give give true dignity to a man. It doesn't lift him up. Only holiness will, will do that and can do that. What Bildad has said didn't do anything to help Explain the situation that Job was in. 
But what Bildad said in this very short speech definitely spoke the truth about God's word and his righteousness. The latter, that is his righteousness, especially showing the depravity of man. So, so man's great need is for the gospel. And now in chapter 26, here Job answers Bildad and he, and he speaks about man's frailty and God's majesty. Look at, again, there are, these are, now these are Job's last words to Bildad's last speech and Job's longest speech. Now Job's reply starts here in verse 26 and it goes through 28, the first part. The last half of his speech is covered in chapter 29 through 31. So here Job starts his longest speech by rebuking Bildad who just finished speaking. Look at verses 1 and 2. But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? Well, this rebuke was aimed at Bildad. It could also apply to all three of Job's friends. They all blew it miserably in their attempt to try to help Job. They didn't give him any comfort. They didn't strengthen him in his time of weakness. All they did was criticize him. That's why we believe that they secretly enjoyed the fact that Job experienced these, sin, these painful situations, you see, because it, it gave them an advantage over their rival. They secretly enjoyed Job's painful situation because it gave them an advantage over their rival. Because remember, Job had always been considered greater than they were back in chapter Job, uh, Job chapter 1. He was considered the greatest man in the East. But see, now because of the position, the situation that Job is in, they can lord it over him. And they can use his terrible condition to say, ah, he's a great sinner experiencing God's judgment. While they, who were the lesser ones over the past years, can now lift themselves up over Job as being more righteous. They were not about to help Job. Job was down. Their rival was down. They didn't want to strengthen him. They didn't want to help him to get better. But they also didn't know how to help Job. Even if they wanted to. Verse 3. How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? Job says, hey, how have you enlightened how have you enlightened my stupidity what what wise advice you've offered me bildad and the other two buddies look at job as if he didn't have any wisdom and job sarcastically exaggerates what he says about the, 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 how great the counsel he was. You know, he says, what great advice you offered me, Bill, Dad. Boy, it was wonderful. And again, Job was saying it in sarcasm. The sarcastic words say that Bill, Dad didn't give any solution to the problem at the moment. Neither did the other two guys give any solution about why Job was so suffering so badly. All three friends thought the reason for Job's trouble was, again, his great sin and that he needed to repent. But that was no solution at all to the problem, so their talk was no remedy at all. Verse 4. Job says, To whom have you uttered words 
And whose spirit came from you? The criticism here says that what Bildad said is not even close to applying to Job. So Job asks him, Bildad, who in the world are you talking to? Where are you getting your answers for me? To whom have you uttered words? Now, what Job said here could be said about all the speeches that were directed to him by his friends. Because sometimes the things that his friends said to him, they were pretty strong, but they didn't make sense when it came to Job. So he's asking him, hey, who were you, got, who were you talking to? I mean, who were you talking to when you were putting these speeches together to talk to me? Because the things they said didn't apply to Job. The three friends thought they did. They thought what they were putting together to say to Job applied to Job, but they were, they were, they were wrong. So their speeches didn't make any sense at all. They were without good reasoning. And Job asked Bildad, again, what was the sor- who was the source of your speech? Where were you getting your information from? The speech in its application didn't give Job any help. Bildad needed to get a better source. Now, Bildad did say some good things in his last speech. And Job isn't disagreeing with what Bildad said, but it didn't have any th- anything to do with Job's problem at all. And Job was implying that, man, Bildad, you need to get some better sources of information, man. If, if you're going to be helpful in everyday life. Job's sayings here about God are to let his three friends know that he's not ignorant about God as they th- seem to think he is. Job was very knowledgeable about the things of God like they are. In fact, he was much more knowledgeable in spiritual matters than, they has, than his three th- friends ever were. And, and towards the end, of, in chapter 42, even God later on said that Job was better, uh, spoke better about God than his three friends did. The subject here is about the power of God. And while Job struggles with God's behavior, you know, about how he's dealing with Job's troubles, he doesn't criticize the power of God. God's power in judgment and condemnation of sin, it's great. God is not limited in his power. And there's no evil that can resist God's judgment. Look at verses 5 and 6. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting in them. Sheol is naked before him and destruction has no covering. This speaks of the greatness of God. God's judgment will be experienced. Uh, this is the sad thing. God's judgment will be experienced to its fullest in hell. It says here the dead beneath the waters. They learn quickly about the power of God's judgment on sin. The word Sheol here means the grave or place of the dead. And it's also in some places used for hell. Death of the unrepentant sinner will be very aware of the power of God's judgment. But what a horrible experience that is going to be for all unrepentant sinners when they die without Christ they will find out that the wrath of God is no joke. Verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. (coughs) The power for creation had to be extraordinarily great. 
While talking about the power of God in the creation of space, Job spoke correctly about the empty space without stars in the north. Job's comment here in verse 7 about the empty uh, place in the north isn't unscientific. Some years ago, uh, observers at the Washington Observatory said that there was an empty space in the north without a single star. And yet the Bible gave this truth over 3,000 years ago. Like many other things. Science doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible proves science. For centuries, men thought the earth was held up by something or someone. But the wonderful Bible spoke what we know today is truth. And that is, and that is God hung the earth in space. There's no hook or some hanging device that supports the earth. It's not hung from some hook. And there's an encouraging lesson here about God and circumstances. God is bigger than any circumstances. God, when he created earth, look, oh, where am I going to? How am I going to hang the earth? Where am I going to put it? There's nothing to hang it on. You see, this is encouraging about God and circumstances because, you see, God is bigger than any circumstances that you and I could ever experience. Circumstances, they, they, they don't limit God. He didn't have anything to hang the earth on, so what does he do? I'll just hang it on nothing. And you know what? It's still hanging on nothing tonight. God has the power to overcome all circumstances. And yet so many times we think that our tough circumstances are just too big for God to handle. If we need financial help. And we don't know of anyone who can help us. What do we do or what do we don't do? We hesitate to pray. Because we think it's, it's even too big for God. If we need a job and we don't have any friends or family to pull some strings or for us, we think that God can't get us a job either. So we don't look, we don't pray. We often won't even pray to God about a job. And yet God can hang the earth on nothing. Never, never doubt the power of God to overcome your circumstances. Verse 8. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. Job sees the power of God in how we get rain. Clouds are filled with water and they move over the earth and the clouds hold tons and tons of water. It's poured out the cl- and the clouds, aren't, the clouds aren't torn. God's power is really great in causing the clouds to carry water for rain. Verse 9, he covers the face of his throne and he spreads his cloud over it. This verse talks about God controlling the clouds. They can fill the sky. They can block the view of the sky or heavens. God's power controls the clouds. Verse 10. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. One of the great proofs of God's power is holding the oceans in check. God has set the boundaries for the oceans. 
and they stay with those, within those limits and no more. Verse 11. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. The pillars of heaven are considered to be the mountains by the ancients because they seem to hold up the sky. And here Job talks about the power of God that can shake even these mountains. Like powerful earthquakes or volcanoes. And he sees this shaking as a rebuke. In other words, he sees this shaking as God's divine judgment. Now today, when you talk about that, let's use today's pandemic, for example. Is that God's judgment? It could very well be. But today people laugh. And they even get angry at the thought of that idea. When an earthquake hits and destroys miles and miles of property and and lives are lost. This pandemic again. We've seen nothing like it. Or at least I haven't. Or some natural disaster as being God's judgment when it hits, people laugh. And again, like I said, they get angry. God wouldn't do that. Why would God allow so many people to die? If he allowed his son to die because of sin, man's sin. What makes us think that God wouldn't allow many to die upon the earth? With all the sin that's going on this moment, any disaster can justifiably justifiably be thought of to be God's judgment. But disasters today are explained away as coincidence. Oh, this happens every so often. This happens every so many years. And oh, we're about ready to have another earthquake. So it's, it's no big deal. Disasters explained away as coincidence. Now, true, they may not all be divine judgment. But we cannot be so quick to say it is never divine judgment. Verse 12. He stirs up the sea with his power and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. By his power, the seas are suddenly gathered together and his wisdom has struck the proud one. Verse 13 and 14. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power. Who can understand? This isn't talking about snakes on the ground when he speaks of the serpent here. But it's speaking of a constellation in the sky. God has decorated the heavens with the stars. And Job is calling attention to his God here. As God is revealed in the heavens by his wonderful creation, just looking at the galaxies and the stars and the moon. We see that Job knew God as a creator. Job understood him as a redeemer. But but, but Job didn't know God as as a sustainer, one who could keep him and, and, and hold on to him, the one who loved him. He didn't understand that God wouldn't let anything happen to him unless it would minister to him. Verse 14 says, indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. Job admits that though he's given several examples of God's great power, he's mentioned only a, just a small 
portion of them. In closing, God's power is so great that no one knows all about the power of God. God is so great, so mighty, so awesome, so wonderful that no one knows all about him or can tell all that there is to know about God. What we know about God's power is just, I mean, it is so small. It's just so, so, it's just a whisper compared to the fullness of God's power, which Job said, it's like thunder in comparison. And it's a good comparison by Job of what we know about God's power compared to what exists about God's power. Man, we don't even know or can begin to know the power that exists in God. We've just seen many small examples through earthquakes and you know hurricanes and tornadoes and thunder and lightning. To us, they're they're mighty and they're powerful, but just a whisper compared to the almighty power that exists in God. Father, we come before you this evening to thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you that you are a mighty God, an awesome, powerful God. And we thank you, Lord, that circumstances are nothing to you, Lord. Circumstances are those things that overcome us, God, when we just focus on them, God. But they're nothing to you, Lord. There's nothing too big for you, God. And Father, I pray for anyone here tonight, God, who's going through any kind of circumstance or circumstances, God, that they would be encouraged, God, to know that you hung the earth on nothing. You can do what needs to be done for any one of us, God, for all of us. So, Lord, be glorified in your people. May we boast about your power. May we boast about the things that you have done for us, God. May we never doubt your power, Lord. Your greatness and who you are. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. May you bless your people tomorrow, God, on Thanksgiving Day. And may we be thankful for so much that we have, God. As Paul said, to be thankful in everything, Lord. And Father, help us to do that. Be with everyone tomorrow. May they be safe to get them home safely tonight, Lord. And just bless their day. Keep us all healthy and and keep us all safe, God. We love you. We praise you. We give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few announcements before we finish with our last song. Um, Sunday morning, we'll be looking at the next uh, church that Christ addressed. And that that'll be the church of...